Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and I want to be very clear, that includes the annuals. Yes, and I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and as a published author, Dan, I think I have the authority to say the annuals don't count. <laughs> oh, see, see, now you're going to hold that over me from now on. This is your, your credentials. All right, drop, that's fair. Drop it, drop it the bomb. That's fair. That's fair, Mark. Well, to all of you, thank you for joining us for this seventh episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. If you want to learn everything we know about Spider-Man... Why not subscribe to our show starting back with the first season? You can enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. So just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. Yes, and in this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. And speaking of which, Dan, today we wanted to take a look at the sometimes odd stories that, while not maybe deserving of their own episode, uh, they're they're influential in their own right. So I guess we're kind of doing this hodgepodgey potpourri episode. Mark, this may be our biggest stretch ever for one of these episodes. This is like our Mister Fantastic episode. Yes, yes. What are who are three people who have not been in my kitchen, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> so, if you want to read along with us, and I, I'm saying, like, bear with me on these numbers here. We're going to be talking about events from Amazing Spider-Man issues 108 and 109, 115, 120, 123, 126, 127, 130, 131, 138. 142 through 143, 156, 157, 160. <gasps> oh my. And Spectacular Spider Man's numbers 8 and 13 through 15. Did you get all that, everybody? If you didn't, just hit that rewind button until you'd write them all down. Or you can just check the show notes and they'll be there. That is that is exhausting just listening on this end, Dan. I'm sorry. It was exhausting to corral all that. I, I don't even know if anybody's going to use it, but I thought, okay, there's going to be one person out there that's like, I want to know what they're talking about. I'll read along. And maybe there's more than that, and I'm telling, giving everybody short shrift. But as always, we're going to be talking about these from a helicopter view. So don't worry if you haven't read them. We're going to kind of summarize what's happening because that's kind of the bulk of this episode. But, you know, if you do want to read along, all of these comics are very easy to find. They're all available in print, in collections. They're available digitally. And I think nearly all of them are on Marvel Unlimited, save for maybe a spectacular Spider-Man or two, because they haven't really uploaded that whole series quite yet. Yeah, this is like this is the opposite of the Marvel team up episode we just did. Like this one is actually pretty accessible. Although I, I they do have the full Mackie or not the full Mackie, the full Burn Claremont run on uh, Marvel Unlimited, I came to find. So, you know, there you go. Well, that was a lot of talking from us, Mark. Let's get into the show. So let's hop in our Spider-Mobile, drive out to Rockaway Beach, and get ready to stop our aunt's wedding for our episode, Odds and Ends. With 
we actually got in trouble once because Ross was so so good about uh, wanting references for for things. We did, did a story called Mindworm uh, about a, a character called the Mindworm. Uh, that's about this kind of mutant kid, you know, who has this ability to uh, do, do telepathic mind control or something. And uh, Ross found this house in in his neighborhood down in Howard Beach, uh, Queens, uh, that he thought would be a great house for this guy to be in because it was on this kind of uh, the only house surrounded by vacant lots. And it was kind of eerie and weird. So he used it as a reference. Unfortunately, it was recognizable and people started fans, local fans started going to the house and asking if the mindworm lived there. And we ended up, <laughs> Marvel ended up getting sued by the owners of the house and they, we had to, uh, uh, pay them off. I think. So Dan, I, I gotta tell you for this first topic here, uh, I'm a little disappointed because when we were talking about season three ideas, I, you know, I was kind of holding adamantly that we got to do a whole episode to the greatest couple in Spider-Man history, Otto Octavius and Aunt May, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. They're a match made in heaven. And you, you, you were the one who put his foot down and said, absolutely not. I'm not wasting my time with this. Um, <laughs> until we were like, ah, we really have to talk about it in some context. So let's just throw it together with a bunch of other random stuff. <laughs> I mean, to, to my credit, like uh, my, my assertion was this is important, but not important to spend an hour on. So, yes, for those of you who like who really like this kind of stuff. All of the Otto Aunt May stuff we're referencing here started uh, in Amazing Spider-Man's number 115, 120, 123 and 130 and 131. Although... You know, technically, Dan, if you remember, all this really started back in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One, the Sinister Six episode uh, issue, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, you could really, you know, I mean, you know, good credit for them to sticking with this. And Jerry Conway clearly was fond of that interaction in that book because he brought it back and made this whole big deal out of it. Um, so, yeah, you're technically right, and I think we noted that then when we talked about that issue. Yeah, I mean, Otto, uh, May always has seemed a little sweet on Otto for reasons we don't know. And this storyline would get referenced. I mean, in Superior, there was that kind of very cheap played for laughs thing where, you know, when Peter had Otto's memories, he remembered stuff about him and Aunt May. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) But really, I mean, for in terms of their their love affair, this this kind of kicks off in one fifteen, where an Otto moves in with amnesia, mind you. Uh, he moves into Aunt May's building and he intercepts her mail. And what does he discover, Dan? He discovers that May has inherited some uh, like large estate in Canada, I guess an island. Although we don't find this out till much later. In fact, the characters all know this before we do. Even Spider-Man, uh, it's like revealed kind of haphazardly. But yeah, she she has inherited this island with um, something on it that you know will come into play much later, which we'll get into in a moment. This also kind of brings in, this comes in during the midst of the uh, introduction to Hammerhead and the Hammerhead Otto gang war. Well, so then May you know, agrees to move in with Otto because he wants to have her nearby, right? Because, you know, he's... He needs some caretaking, you know, but he's like, if I know this about May, I can kind of bring her under my, you know, umbrella and, and, and all this stuff. And the the letter that, like, May received was from this guy, Arthur Rimbaud. I'm guessing that's how you say his name. Although sometimes he's also referred to as Jean-Pierre. So it's another case of, like, the Peter Palmerisms. Yeah, or, or, or was it Ben Banner? Or, uh... <laughs> yeah, Ben Banner is another one, yeah, for, like, an issue. <laughs> Um, and, uh, the letter kind of tells her to go to Canada and, you know, Peter, you know, finds out about this. And so he decides to go, uh, you know, instead of May, but before he can talk to Arthur Rimbaud about it, Arthur is killed off kind of mysteriously because he knows about the estate that May is about to inherit. Then, you know, the stuff with Gwen goes down and Peter goes to Gwen's funeral where Otto and May are attending the funeral, which has kind of been like the worst shocker ever. Right. 
like like my my one arch nemesis just killed my girlfriend and then I have to like see my aunt with my other arch nemesis like come on <laughs> yeah and then like later in the snow Peter finds an envelope that was planted by the jackal which tips him off as to why Otto is interested in May and that's where Peter knows what she's inheriting but we don't the idea is that the jackal put it there to kind of instigate a fight between Otto and Peter hoping that they would kind of kill each other off in, in some way. So he, like Peter's at like a party with Betty. And so he like gets out of there and he goes up to the Westchester estate where may is living. And that's where he bursts or he doesn't burst in yet. He sees through the window that there's a ceremony going on. And this is like one of the weirdest end of a comics ever is that Otto is getting married to aunt may uh, in this like elaborate ceremony. It, it's quite insane because when you're when you're a criminal mastermind trying to take advantage of an old woman. Well, I, I'm I'm jumping the gun a little bit. Spoiler, uh, <laughs> spoiler of a of a forty year old story. You know, it makes sense to like do a big elaborate ceremony instead of like you know trying to do a wedding in the quickest and most painless way possible, right? I love it because like Otto's in like a tux that accommodates his like extra arms. <laughs> May looks like the stiffest she's ever looked. Like, she looks, like, nearly ready to die. Maybe it's just the pencils or something like that. But she's in this full wedding outfit. Like, when did they have time to go and get this gown for May? I just would love to see a a series of stories detailing this whole, like, rigmarole. My favorite detail is that, like, one of Otto's henchmen is, like, in the background wiping away a tear with a hanky. (laughs) (laughs) It's just absurd. I mean, I think in terms of absurdness, this or the hammerhead ghost stuff is the most absurd that we got during the Bronze Age. Would you agree with that? There's some other stories we're about to get to that kind of uh, I think they're all pretty absurd, Dan. I mean, I think it's hard. It's hard to pick a favorite here. I do like the detail when Hammerhead uh, interrupts the wedding here and um, Otto and May, they they flee in a helicopter <laughs> from an underground lair. It's so <laughs> intricate. It's like, when did he have time to build all this stuff? It's so convenient. It's, it's truly, I think, one of the biggest stretches for like a Spider-Man villain. You know, like Kingpin having like trap doors under his desk and all that stuff. Okay, fine. But like Otto having this whole secret Westminster estate, Westchester estate, it's really a lot to buy. Because, like, it's you gotta. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to be overly pedantic here because it's comics, but like, it's not like, I mean, like, Kingpin, he's, he, you know, like you said, he's established as like this kind of wealthy businessman. He's just crooked. I mean, he's a, he's a true mobster. Otto is not a mobster, even though they're trying to do this whole gang war thing. He's a, he's a criminal. You know what I mean? So, like, it's, it's like, how, how does he have the means to, to develop something like this? Although I guess at the same time, our favorite auto story, you know, he's got an underwater base. So, I mean, nothing is truly out of the realms of reach for this guy. Are we going to get into what this reveal is and what May has? Because like this, this might kind of correct what I was saying a few seconds ago, Dan. This might be the most absurd thing in Spider-Man comics history here. I think it is the most absurd thing in Spider-Man comics history. Mark, do you want to do you want to do the honors? Well, so <laughs> so apparently, Aunt May, beautiful May, she has inherited an a Canadian island that has quote unquote one of the richest supplies of uranium found in nature. <laughs> My favorite thing is that there's already like an airfield built on on this place, you know, and quote one of the world's most sophisticated nuclear breeding reactors already built on the site. Like is anybody monitoring this? Like why is this allowed to just go to someone's like old aunt like is there no government overseeing this right you know because that's that's how this stuff works i mean it's like you know it's like that that enriched uranium that we kept hearing about a couple years ago it's just it's just you know like that's that's just how uranium works dan like it just goes into the hands of people without any oversight whatsoever (laughs) my favorite thing is how jerry like summarizes this literally on the page quote May Parker has inherited the most modern, privately owned atomic processing plant in the world, a plant that, in the wrong hands, could produce weapons powerful enough for a madman to wreak incredible havoc, unquote. And wouldn't you know, Dan, that, like, you know, May happens to have access to many madmen 
because of her nephew. I mean, it's just like, what a coincidence, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of like triggers a like war between Hammerhead and Ock. And it seems like Hammerhead has no idea what he's actually fighting for. He just kind of knows that something, you know, there's something that Otto wants. So like they're fighting and eventually it becomes clear to Hammerhead that it's like this nuclear reactor, which he can use to rule the underworld or something. But like Otto dives out of the way of one of Hammerhead's blows and Hammerhead runs into the nuclear reactor, which triggers a nuclear explosion and an accompanying mushroom cloud, which apparently kills both. And I think truly earns Jerry Conway his role as the the mass murderer on the Spider-Man title. I mean, has anybody killed off more characters than he did? Truly, this is like nuking the fridge before it became a thing, right? Before Indiana Jones even? Absolutely, absolutely. So the best detail is that Spider-Man managed to escape by like, flying a plane with aunt may on it out of there and we never see him like land the plane or anything like that or (laughs) any follow-up on a giant nuclear fallout in canada like it's just completely swept under the rug and you know you could say oh comics whatever but it's truly silly and may is like distraught right like she is just like beside herself that this has all come to pot yeah she wakes up on the plane and sees that spider-man is like kidnapped her and Otto is not around anymore and she like faints all over again and you get some slight references to this from may but mostly she kind of just like recovers a few issues later and is back to being old may as we referenced earlier, I mean, of course, this this whole relationship would kind of be followed up on in like dribs and drabs over the course of the Bronze Age, including Otto showing up at another great event of holy matrimony, the uh, Ned Leeds Betty Brant wedding, right? Yeah, he like shows back up at May's place in like kind of like like a bum's attire, and he's been kind of teased for a few issues and. You know, he comes back and moves in with May again for a little bit. It's a whole thing. And they have another Spider-Man fight. That story is pretty quickly resolved. You know, in the modern era, I mean, Dan Slott would reference this quite a few times during the Superior run when he had, you know, basically was writing Otto's voice. But outside of that one little hearty-har-har line of, of Peter witnessing what something happening between the two of them, I mean, it's more, it feels more like Otto appreciates May and respects May and, you know, like would do anything for her, but not necessarily romantically. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest moment of this is in Spider-Man or amazing Spider-Man 800 where, you know, Otto kind of sacrifices himself again in a way to save Aunt May from the goblin childy, as we call him. So yeah, that's Otto Octavius and Aunt May's wedding, which I don't know if it ever got to the point of being official. Was it was it officialized? I'm not quite sure. Is is Otto or was he at one point Peter's uncle? I think it was I think it was always kind of considered almost uncle. So it must not have been officialized or notarized or consummated even. Well, there you go. That would take uh J. Jonah Jameson is the other like person who eventually becomes a member of Spidey's family through Aunt May. So let's talk about the next one and probably my favorite of the things we're going to be talking about today. And that is the introduction during the Bronze Age of the Spider-Mobile. Yes, uh, which you can find, of course, across these issues, 126, 127, Amazing Spider-Man number 126, 127, 130, 141, 157, 159, and 160. Is 160 my my murderer, my car, or whatever the, the It is, it is. is. The I, great I, Mysterio storyline. This is absurd, but I think this is on a different level of absurd because this was also clearly... I've always viewed the Spider-Mobile as uh, a cheap way to kind of cash in on Spider-Man's popularity and kind of create some some off-comic marketing. Like, right? I mean, is that... That seems pretty... Yeah, in fact, I found a quote from Jerry Conway about this. I'm surprised we've never asked him about this on the show. This is what uh, Jerry Conway had to say about the introduction of the Spider-Mobile, which is, uh, he said, This was a notion that Stan had. Stan was put in an odd position because he moved up from being an editor-writer to being the publisher of Marvel Comics in 1970 and 71. And as a result of that, his priorities towards how to find revenues for the company had changed. He was approached by, I think it was Hasbro, or it might have been Tonka Toys or something, who said, listen, we found that what really works for toy characters, in addition to the figures, is if they had a lot of cool stuff with them. Could you maybe give each of your characters a cool car? And so Stan said, sure. 
He didn't have to do it. He told me, you know, Spider-Man needs to have a car. And I'm like, do you realize that Spider-Man swings on a web between buildings and the car would really slow him down doing that? And he said, I don't care what you do with it. Just do it. So we played it for laughs and we sank it in, I think, the same issue. Not exactly true. They didn't sink it in the same issue, but like, it, it seems like from the get-go, Jerry knew that the car was a joke. Um, and I actually looked into this. The toy company wasn't Hasbro or Tonka Toys. It was actually the Mego company who did release a spider-themed car, but it doesn't bear any resemblance to the actual Spider-Mobile. So I don't even know if all this whole thing was necessary at all in the first place. So why don't you tell everybody about what the Spider-Mobile is in the context of the comics? The way this whole thing is introduced is Spider-Man meets these these two folks, Carter and Lombardo, who basically look like Stan Lee and Roy Thomas. So, you know, nink, nink, nudge, nudge. Uh, and they're two ad men representing this company, Corona Motors. Um, and they have this new engine that's non-polluting and they want Spider-Man to build a car with their engine to promote it. So, you know, you, you, I mean, you know, if I could just sidebar for a second here, like, so Spider-Man, of course, we know that Peter has this science background, but this is like another instance of like, kind of like, well, what, what, what exactly is Spider-Man capable of doing? Like, like we have the web shooters, which I guess demonstrates mechanical engineering, but like now he's building cars. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I love that these guys just assume that like, oh, Spider-Man, he, he could build a car. And reality is not so much. First he says no, but then he realizes like that he's rent, his rent is two months overdue you know, complicated by the Harry Osborn stuff. You know, he goes back and says, yes. And they reveal, we don't actually have any plans for a vehicle. We just have this motor. So then he goes to the Baxter building and gets the human torch to help him out. And they kind of slowly build it in the background of a few issues. Yeah. And which, you know, is important from a historical standpoint, because I mean, the 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 Spider-Man Human Torch relationship has started it to thaw by this point anyway, but I feel like, and this of course would get mined much later in the Spider-Man Human Torch mini that we talked about in one of our essential episodes. I mean, I, I do think kind of showing them together, being more cordial. I mean, they're you know rib- they're ripping on each other throughout, but it, this does feel like this is actually becoming a genuine friendship now, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's less competition. It's like there's actual they're still ribbing, but there's a spirit of like friendliness to it that like I think is a real evolution from what came before where they really just kind of I don't know if they were friends before, but they were like very like a, like actually mean to each other. So, of course, my favorite thing about this whole thing is, you know, as Peter or Spider-Man is driving this thing. We, of course, come to the realization that Peter doesn't have a driver's license. So he's driving this car in Manhattan without a license, and he's terrible at it, of course. So it's a real mess. One of the things I like to think about with the Spider Mobile, and, you know, I wrote into Amazing Spider Man and got a letter of mine printed in one of the annuals. It was like a flashback annual with Captain America, where I was like goofing around and saying, you should create the Spider Plane. And, you know, when Spider-Man was, like, being invented as a character, it's like, well, what are the limits of this character? Would this guy drive a Spider-Mobile? I think the answer is clearly no. But one of the fun things to do if you go back and read the issues after the Spider-Mobile is introduced is how much fan backlash there was to the Spider-Mobile. Like, people really wrote in and, and said, like, how incredibly stupid this idea was. Like, Spider-Man should not drive a Spider-Mobile. It, it, and one of the letters I actually found said it broke the grounded reality of Spider-Man. Like, the, the car is what did it. That's the line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree. Like, if, if you were reading this and didn't know that Jerry Conway was, wasn't, like, joking about this, I think I would have had a pretty violent reaction to the appearance of the car as well. And I think Jerry finally reveals the joke when the car is first revealed and Spider-Man says, quote, now that's what I call a fiasco. Like that was like the reveal, but it's funny because one of the letters that was written in lambasting the book was from this guy, Steve Saffel, who went on to write this, this really great book, Spider-Man, the icon, 
which I know you and I both own. So it's funny seeing like old names pop up in the letters pages who would go on to kind of write the book on Spider-Man. Even the most hardcore fans were like, kind of like, what the hell is this? We're obviously looking at this in with hindsight and, you know, a more cynical eye in the 21st century. But I, I can't I can't help but think that even then people seeing this stuff is like, you know, they were probably thinking, you know, what kind of ploy is this? Like, like Spider-Man doesn't have a car. You know what I mean? I mean, it's one thing when his aunt's marrying Doc Ock because it's it's comics and that kind of works in a weird superhero melodrama standpoint but this is just out of nowhere and it makes no sense because why would he need why would he drive a car (laughs) even the features of the car are like patently absurd right like it's got a spider signal built in which kind of hadn't been a fixture in the comics in quite a while at that point like i can't think of the last time we saw the spider signal at this point and then it's got like a webbing switch where it can like web people up or maybe swing through the city, which it's like, did he share his web formula with the Human Torch? <laughs> you know, it made me wonder about that. And it's got ejector seats, and I love that the Human Torch's reason is like just because. You know, all these cars have to have ejector seats. I think there's even a point where Peter goes to like a party, and he like flips a switch, and the car like turns into like a Studebaker or something like that. It's like James Bond's car. Does it play like uh, La Cucaracha 2 on the horn? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> that would be pretty, that would be pretty swank. So of course, you know, there is the inevitable car chase because it's a car. Uh, and it's with the police and Mysterio actually sets up some fog uh, affecting Spider-Man's visibility and making his bad driving even worse. And he crashes it into the Hudson. And I always love this. The cops, um, basically, just watch watch this car sink, thinking Spider-Man's in there drowning with it. And and Spidey says, "My popularity is so low that the cops don't even want to dredge for my body." <laughs> wah wah. <laughs> well, Spider-Man himself goes dredging for the Spider-Mobile later. He like goes back down into the Hudson River and is like, "I don't know what to do with this thing. Do I get it out of here? Like, I don't necessarily want it, but I have to." deliver it to these guys. And so like the two guys like Carter and Lombardo from Corona Motors, they run a column in the Daily Bugle threatening to sue Spider-Man unless he can deliver the car, which it's like, how do you plan on doing that? Like you're going to be like subpoena Spider-Man. I don't know how that works. If Spider-Man can't even cash a check in his name, how is he going to get sued? I don't know. But But then the mystery like deepens because Spider-Man's like, oh crap, I got to do something with this. So he goes back there and then the car is gone except for like one side view mirror. And then like there's this tease in the book where we see these mysterious figures rebuilding the car and it actually like signals the return of a major villain. Who is that, Mark? Uh, It is none other than um, the return of the terrible tinkerer. Uh, who was first seen and only seen in Amazing Spider-Man number two. Although the Tinkerer would become, they would start using him a little more again. And then, of course, he he showed up in Spider-Man Homecoming and then was in the Chip Zdarsky Spectacular run. But yeah, this was the second appearance of the Tinkerer, Dan. I think like clearly establishes that he wasn't an alien at, at that point in time. Um, as was suspected. And uh, so we get some retconning going on here. And then the joy of all joys is that the car starts chasing after Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, you know, the car becomes semi-sentient here, right? Is that is that what we're, what we're led to believe? <laughs> kind of, I guess. I think it's being controlled, but my, the weirdest thing is that suddenly the car can drive up walls like Spider-Man can. Right, right. You know, makes sense to make that change now. Of course. And so Spider-Man defeats the Tinkerer, destroys the car, and then returns it to Stan and Roy, or Carter and Lombardo, with um, a complimentary note. And and it made me think, like, this is, like, I think, like, the second or third time ever that we see Spider-Man's note appearing in, in the book. During this read-through, I've kind of been trying to figure out when the first time he uses a handwritten note is. I think this is like the second or third time we see that. It's also worth noting here that at this point, the book is like transitioned over to Len Wein, right? It's not, this is not Jerry anymore. So clearly, clearly someone got to Len to make him write more about the Spider-Mobile. <laughs> Everybody's favorite thing. Definitely worth crossing over multiple runs. Well, it would come back in the future, like you said. Where do we see the car again? It comes back in the future, but let's let's be honest here. It comes back in the future because of Dan Slott. Because this is like, this is the kind of like weird, bizarre minutia from the past that Dan Slott just like eats with a spoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Like he lives for this kind of stuff. We probably are not talking about the Spider Mobile, if not for Dan Slott, in my opinion, because like he just used this thing. He used it in the Spider Man Human Torch Mini that we mentioned earlier. I mean, basically built an entire episode around it. Then he also brings it back in Amazing Spider-Man number 600 as it's on display in the Smithsonian. It's in No One Dies in Amazing Spider-Man number 655 as part of that double page tableau of people who have died under Spider-Man's watch. (laughs) I love that. That's like the best joke on that page. And then, of course... Part of Dan Slott's original pitch for Spider-Verse, which was to have every version of Spider-Man ever, was to have a an alternative version of the Spider-Mobile being known as Peter's Parked Car. Waka waka. I, I uh, love that joke. <laughs> that, like, we never get that actual name in the comic, but we do see the Spider-Mobile from another dimension that's a sentient version of the character. But I don't know why he couldn't just put that name in. Peter Parked Car is too funny. And where else have we seen him that's not even Spider-Man, technically? Oh, yeah. In the Old Man Logan book by Millar and McNiven, you know, Logan and Hawkeye kind of travel around the desert, and the Spider-Mobile is how they drive. So it's one of those things, like, even in the apocalypse, the Spider-Mobile has survived. There you go. And that's that's a non-dance slot story. Yeah. And then another dance slot story, I guess, like, if you really want to extend this into evolutions of the Spider-Mobile, just like the spider armor, it would eventually get upgraded and Peter would learn to drive and build an even more powerful version of the car in his kind of like Parker Industries era on the book. The Spider-Mobile, Dan. Love it. One of my favorite things ever. I'm so glad that it's come back. And these stories are great, especially if you know that they're written with like the tongue firmly planted in its cheek. This episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue, while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Our next story we're going to talk about I mean, I think this is probably, of all the things, the least absurd, although it's it's a superhero comic wedding themes storyline. So, of course, weird stuff happens during it. And it's the setup for, like, truly weird things to come down the pike. But I feel like the actual premise of this story is not weird in its own right. And that is the marriage of Ned Leeds and Betty Brant, the, the, the long sweetheart stating, going back to the Ditko Lee run. You know, basically the man that Betty Brant leaves Peter for in the early 60s. And you can get these stories in Amazing Spider-Man issues 142, 143, 156. Why don't, you, why don't you lead us into what's going on here, Dan? Sure. So like in issue 142, Ned and Betty break the news to everyone at the yet unnamed Coffee Bean, which, you know, everybody's really excited about. And it causes Peter to kind of like reflect on their own history because he's very like caught up in his own head about like the Gwen stuff and this kind of burgeoning romance with Mary Jane. So that's really interesting. It's weaved into the story pretty artfully, I feel like. But one weird thing I, I found when I was like rereading this is that like they tell everybody the date of the wedding is going to be August 27th. But if you go and read the issue where they get married, everybody there is in like their winter coats. So, you know, either they delayed the wedding considerably or they forgot that that was the date of the wedding. Like later on, you know, like Peter, you know, and Betty and Ned, they keep interacting with each other. And there's this one moment where uh, Peter's trying to butter up Betty and he tells her, quote, you know, you're the only girl I ever loved and kisses her on the cheek, which I think is kind of fortuitous because there's a lot of shenanigans that go on. Like Peter is not the best dude in the world, which is funny because when the wedding comes, Peter is the best man, which I think is pretty bold of Ned considering that Peter was like his competition early on. And Betty's like last ex, which like good on you, Ned, you didn't deserve to have your throat slit and then come back and die again in rubble. Poor Ned. On that note, MJ is also the maid of honor in the wedding, which is also kind of weird because I don't feel like Betty and MJ have much of a relationship. You know, this feels like Saved by the Bell Syndrome, where, like, these are the only six characters that exist in this universe, and thus they must do everything together. Sure, because Betty's also being given away by Jameson, which, like, I get it, he's her boss, but does she not have a dad? I guess not. I mean, and, and I mean, didn't, didn't we establish, too, that Betty has a sister 
I feel like that came up at one point. So, like, shouldn't she have been the main? I, whatever. I mean, comics. Yeah, absolutely. So, speaking of comics, you know, it's a wedding, but a comics wedding wouldn't be complete if it wasn't interrupted, including that, you know, the Otto May wedding. So, who interrupts this wedding, Mark? Well, of course, Dan, this would be none other than one of Spider-Man's most notorious villains, uh, the great Mirage, who, if you don't know who we're talking about, go reference that Steve Lieber artwork uh, for our Patreon members that you received for the guy kind of crouching down in the corner there. Uh, Mirage, Dan, like what's Mirage's deal? He's got this like strange yellow headset. I guess his whole outfit is yellow, but he looks almost like Galactus on like a bad fashion day. Um, he's got this like these like V shapes coming off of his head and he can like use like a 3D hologram projector thing to create alternate like versions of himself, which is kind of a cool power. But he's just like a jerk is really the best way to put it. I mean, like some of these guys you can respect. Mirage is like so full of himself. He like is constantly boasting throughout the whole issue. And you just want to see Spider-Man deck him one, which he eventually does. And there's not really anything that interesting. He's just kind of there to like rob all of these people having a wedding. So like it wasn't even targeted. He's just kind of working his way through this venue, robbing everybody. And, you know, obviously the leads Brant one is the last one he goes to because Spider-Man is there to like stop him. So yeah, Mirage is defeated and everybody gets married and it's happily ever after for Ned Leeds and Betty Brandt. Yeah, I mean, nothing ever really happened with them ever again, right? No, not at all. So, I mean, I think it's special of note that um, they go on like a honeymoon in Paris where Ned is like named like uh, the Bugle's foreign correspondent, which kind of like kicks him out of the series for a while. I mean, he'll show up here and there, but he's kind of like off doing things overseas And um, right before the issue ends, Betty throws the bouquet to Aunt May, who kind of jokes like she's like, was Betty serious about that? Because it was like a really targeted thing. And um, for me, that's the moment that Aunt May is forever doomed to be set up to have a series of near happily ever afters that end in horrible, depressing death. Which is apropos considering it came from Betty Brandt. In all seriousness, Ned Ned and Betty kind of have a rough relationship uh, over the years. I mean, that's even putting aside uh, Ned's eventual murder. Uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, actually, this is kind of an interesting setup. I mean, it's, you know, Ned is this kind of jet-setting, high-powered foreign correspondent, and and that basically creates friction between he and Betty. I mean, like, you know, which is a kind of a real relatable problem, right? Yeah, except Betty then does, like, some truly terrible stuff. Because she shows back up in the States because she's gone for a little while, too. And she tries to have an affair with Peter, who, like, I think is far too accommodating of it. Like, he's kind of entertaining it for a little while. Yeah, well, because he had just broken up with MJ, if memory serves. So he's kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, wait, well. (laughs) He tries to justify it by being like, Ned Leeds isn't that good of a guy. And it's like wait a minute, weren't you his best man? Like Shows what that means. <laughs> it's one of those moments where Peter is kind of truly being a scumbag. Like you, It's like the Deb Whitman stuff. You're like, ah, oh, Peter, come on, man. Definitely Peter the cad here. And then, um, you know, but she would eventually get that affair with Flash Thompson, who, you know, unfortunately is far more, far more understanding that he would be the one to do that. <laughs> but he's dating Shoshan at the, at the time who we're going to talk about it in a minute, you know, and it's kind of all comes to a head when like Ned Leeds finds out about like Peter and Betty and flash and Betty. And it's this whole big, like terrible love triangle thing. And like their marriage tr- finally truly dissolves when Betty like suspects that Ned is the hobgoblin and when Ned dives, Betty like suffers this mental break and she falls prey to this cult, which, you know, Peter and flash pull her out of. And I don't think like ever since then, like Betty has never been quite so awful of a character. Like she just had like a string of like a hundred issues where she was like truly one of the most despicable characters in this comic. I, I always love that. Mark Wade story where I feel kind of like repairs Betty and, and Peter, which is also known as the Obama issue for those playing at home. I think it's 587, which kind of like paints their friendship in a new light. I feel like a lot of a lot of people don't know how to touch 
that whole relationship. I mean, Roger Stern did a good job with it, and Hobgoblin lives too. I feel like that kind of redeems Betty to a degree. But man, again, in, in very in a very understandable problem, kind of like paints her in this really awful picture. I mean, it, it, I don't want to get too political here, Dan, but it does kind of like show how inadvertently like misogynistic these comics can be sometimes, you know? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, there's some truly egregious stuff in that regard uh, around this time. And, and Peter's relationship to women is something, it's a whole other topic for another time. He's got some real kind of like issues early on. I think they've done a good job of kind of turning him around a little bit in recent years, but th- there was a lot of time in like the seventies and eighties where he was just like not a character you wanted to read about in that regard. So speaking of characters you may not want to read about, <laughs> let's talk what's what's our last featured story of this pod, Dan? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking like big stories that influence the history of Spider-Man that are, you know, that aren't worth the whole episode, I don't even know if this is I would consider this a big story, but I thought it was worth mentioning and it's the like relationship that establishes itself here during this run between Flash and Shashan which I mentioned a second ago would go completely haywire. And we'll talk about that again here, but yeah, I think there's like a big kind of reinvention of Peter and Flash's relationship and like a kind of way to move Flash away from being the kind of jerky jock Lothario that he was for such a long time. And so you can read these stories in the pages of amazing Spider-Man 108, 109 and 138 and spectacular Spider-Man, which we're going to be talking about in much greater detail in a coming episode, but the numbers 8, 13, 14, and 15. But yeah, give us some background to this, Mark. The other reason why I think this story is important to note in the context of this episode is not only the Peter Flash dynamic that got changed, but like I also feel like these are the first stories that really kind of gave some detail to Flash's Vietnam experience, which would come back also to kind of flesh out the character. Now, granted, the experience we get here is quite is quite eye opening and not the and not like the enlightening way I would say like it's, this is this this story is like I mean this is I I was joking with you before we were recording that this is like woke Stan Lee uh, which is kind of like I feel like the weirdest version of Stan Lee because he's trying to like be edgy and and current with his writing talking about Vietnam but we get this story that like is. It's not even borderline racist. This is like racist stuff. It's really offensive in retrospect and probably at the time. But yeah, so basically the way we are introduced to Shashan is Flash is giving this story about being in Vietnam. He meets Shashan and her father, who's like this mystic ruler of a holy temple, uh, which is then destroyed by this guy's own people. And then Flash thinks they've been lost. He discovers that he's basically been captured to to be sacrificed to awaken Shashan's father. In the midst of this, like we, they're described as being Oriental, and so I mean, like, like I said, this is just like really weird, offensive, racist stuff. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird because on the other hand of that, the wokeness comes in the form that like Stan has the Americans destroy the temple. And so, like, Flash goes to warn Shoshana and her father about this. So it's, like, him acknowledging at the very least that, like, Americans aren't necessarily a force for good in Vietnam, that they are kind of, like, wreaking havoc on innocent people. And so, like, that's interesting, but then it doesn't necessarily treat those people as, like, fully formed individuals beyond their kind of the sillier depictions of their culture. But yeah, I mean, that that story is interesting, and that's pretty early on here, and that's like Stan Lee's stuff. I thought it was important to note also in issue 138, which people might remember as the Mindworm issue, Peter is like kicked out of his apartment after uh, Harry Osborn destroys it, and he's forced to move in with like a friend, and the only one who will let him in is Flash Thompson all the way out in Rockaway Beach. And to me, this was the start of like the change in Peter and Flash's relationship. Like it got warmer when Ramita came on the book and things like that. But in this issue, Peter truly acknowledges that like maybe he had misjudged Flash and that he's actually a good guy and that they might have more in common than he initially realized, which we would see play out, you know, over, you know, all the way up to issue 800 of amazing Spider-Man. So um, I thought that was a, kind of important to note and then peter would obviously move into his more famously dumpy apartment with miss muggins later where we meet glory gloria grant for the first time 
Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of the end of this like initial story, but then, you know, in the pages of spectacular Spider-Man, we get like a really, one of my favorite bonkers stories, which we're going to get into the full details of later in that episode. But, um, tell us what does this have to do with flash and Shashan here? Well, you only like this story because it's uh, the first appearance of, like, your favorite supporting character in the history of comics, right? <laughs> yes, Razorback. I love him. But, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, you and Jason Latour. You could talk about this story forever. Oh, it's so <laughs> bonkers. And Raz- Razorback is, like, the cherry on top, you know? So, uh, but yeah. So, like, Shashan reappears because, of course, she's now working at an Asian restaurant that Peter, Glory, and Flash attend. But it's weird because she denies that she's Shashan and they kind of, I think, like overhear a guy in the back room, like yelling at her to suppress her identity. And then it turns out that she's married to this guy. Is it Ahmed Korba? Is that, am I saying that right? I don't know. <laughs> and he is actually controlling her as, and we're, we're, we're about to talk about another cult in this episode, Dan. This is, I think, another record in terms of cults. It's the Brother Power and Sister Moon cult. Yeah. And they're like this like thing where only the husband and wife of this cult can summon forth magical powers and they can brainwash people. And they end up going to the stadium where they like have this big rally. It's a lot to go into, which I promise you we're going to get into detail details on this because it's a favorite story of mine. But the important thing to know is that like flash like discovers that Shashan is in this cult and he uses their history together to kind of like de brainwash her and pull her out of this like abusive marriage with Ahmed. And it just spirals into utter insanity, which we'll cover later, obviously. And after freeing her flash and Shashan begin this like, a moderately long-running romance. Yeah, I mean, this thing goes for well over 100 issues, I believe, or, or you know, so, I mean, a while. I mean, it, it, what eventually starts to disintegrate during the aforementioned affair between um, Flash and Betty Brant. This also features Flash uh, basically being physically abusive to Shashan because, yet again, we... You know, it's not bad enough that these characters are having an affair, but they also then have to become dirtbags, I guess, to truly consummate the badness of them. <laughs> and like Shashan, like, you know, slaps Flash at one point. So like, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not justified, but it's a truly toxic relationship to the point that when Flash is accused of being the Hobgoblin, uh, Shashan refuses to testify on his behalf, suggesting that he uh, got what he deserved, even though she knows that he's not the Hobgoblin. Eventually, Shashan does disappear for a while, but she does come back in the uh, flashback uh, issue where Flash loses his legs in the Iraq war. Uh, he's a patient uh, for physical therapy, and she is the physical therapist, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and she also ends up being the physical therapist for Aunt May during the Dan slot run when her leg is injured. So I wouldn't say Shashan is like a hugely major character. She's probably like a B or C list character in the supporting cast, but she does pop back up every now and again. It's a woman of a variety of professional roles, right? She's like an assistant to like this monk. Then she works in an, in an Asian food re- restaurant. Then she's like the head of a cult. And now she's a physical therapist. I'd love to see what that resume looks like. I mean, hey, she made good on it. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be glib here, but I think like, again, the purposes of us talking about this story is more about kind of how this positioned Flash in the Spider-Man universe. I feel that this kind of advanced his character. Sometimes, other times it kind of Degressed his character, uh, regressed his character a bit, but whatever. That's Flash Thompson for you. I mean, his character oscillates from being like the noble friend that was misunderstood to being like a deeply troubled individual to being like super soldier Venom guy, which is like kind of a combination of both of those things. Uh, so, but like that's what's cool about Flash is he turned out to being like quite a deep and fully fleshed out character, at least in terms of spider man supporting cast. It's weird that he's gone now. Yeah, for now. (laughs) Well, Dan, you know, speaking of weird, I think it's weird that we're about to wrap this episode up, right? Truly, Mark. (laughs) Truly the weirdest thing you've said today. That's my greatest transition ever. No, thank you for joining us for our seventh episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan... 
What's coming down the pike for the show, man? Well, um, by the time you are listening to this, I will have seen Spider-Man Far From Home early. And Mark, you're seeing it a few days later in an early screening. So we're going to come back and give you our spoiler-free early thoughts on Spider-Man Far From Home, just like we did with Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, Dan. I feel like the first time ever, I think, for one of these live action movies, at least, I, I'm actually going to get to see it well in advance of <laughs> the movie opening instead of two weeks afterwards, like I normally see them. People will actually listen to that episode this time. Yeah, right. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> what else is coming out for everybody to listen to? Well, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed uh, for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 23. Remember, folks, there is no better time and place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than for our exciting coverage of this current run. Uh, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, sworn b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork this season from Barry Kitson. Awesome. Uh, just a reminder again to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Get all caught up in that. I actually talked to Matt this morning and, you know, he's starting to kind of like get all of his stuff back in gear after the floods and stuff that were going on. So I think that show will be back very shortly. Uh, it sounds like they're kind of gearing back up for that. But in the meantime, please check out the amazing Spider Slack community. It's our Slack group. It's like a kind of mobile phone version of a forum where I'm always in there talking to everybody. We have a great time. I think there's like now over 200 people in our Slack and we're constantly talking about Spider-Man and comics and everything in general. So check out this episode's description. There's a link right in there. You can click on it and it will have you fill out your name and you can join our Spider-Man talking community. Mark, if people wanted to keep up with you, where could they do so on the internet? Well, uh, as promised in our last episode, Dan, I've been a little more engaged on Twitter lately, so you can follow me there, at ChasingASMblog, and of course, you can always get my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. We wrote this book before the first movie, but uh, hey, why don't, you, why don't you go read it before Far From Home and get some other info about Mysterio and people like that? Yeah, it truly is kind of like the show bible for uh, everything we talk about on here, so if you want to get a bit of a jump start... Check out Mark's book. And Dan, uh, where can we find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, talking about Spider-Man all live long day. That's Sup, like, what's up, Spider Talk, And um, also over on AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And like I said earlier, our Slack. I'm just kind of everywhere you could think to find me in regards to podcasting and talking about Spider-Man. But if there's one thing that's most important to talk about Spider-Man regarding, it's the motto that is the lifeblood of our show. Mark, what is our motto? Well, of course, that motto is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. 